1: So, the first day we were together, we explored mindfulness of sound, experimenting with what it's like to maybe listen to sound, even briefly, without language. Just so that we can see two things. One is how we can give our attention to what's happening in the present, which is always changing, and also how we can start to notice the subjective experience of paying attention. Both things. Then we deepened that on the second day and then we made a big transition from mindfulness of sound to mindfulness of the breathing body. And um, we're going to keep refining that practice and then this morning we took mindfulness of breathing and we refined it even more but just by learning some subtle anatomical tricks to start to get the breath to be finer and uh, not as coarse. Um, The purpose of all this is so we can create um, a heightened awareness so that we can disentangle from the tangle. The tangle that uh, catches us internally and the tangles that we get caught in externally. And the assumption is that this heightened awareness uh, can set us free. But sometimes you can't slip out of the tangle, but the heightened awareness of the tangle itself and how we function in the tangle can actually help make us free. Uh, There was an anonymous 16th century Chinese um, teacher. Uh, Let me say one thing that you should listen to sometimes when you hear these quotes. When you hear the word anonymous, it probably means female. It goes like this. When the wind blows through the bamboo grove, the trunks clatter against one another. When it's passed, the grove is quiet once more. Listen again. When the wind blows through the bamboo grove, how many of you have been in a bamboo grove? The trunks clatter against one another. When it's passed, the grove is quiet once more. So simple, right? Eh? Just like those poems I read yesterday by Busson. Um, when the wind comes in, the trunks all clatter against each other. And when the wind passes, it's quiet again. Um, this is so true of our own mind. Look at your day today. There have been moments where the trunks have clattered together, wind is blowing through. Why? Because certain conditions emerge, clattering emerges. Conditions change, clattering changes. So when I describe practice, I really like uh, describing this fluidity that we're waking up to. And that this process of being awake is like going into a dark room. And not just turning on a light switch, but lifting a dimmer. So the room is slowly, slowly, slowly illuminated. And we can start to see more and more in place of what was dark, 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 dark. And what I want to talk about today is that you can light up that room no matter what's going on in that room. That room doesn't have to be still for you to turn on the light. And we always start with the body, because it's accessible, it's tangible, and it's the largest part of reality that we can actually know. Your body is the greatest corner, the most tangible corner of the universe that you can be intimate with. And there are many layers of being present in the body, many, many layers, and they all start with breathing. so that we can begin seeing the subjectivity of awareness. The subjective experience of being aware begins in your body. It begins in your body. And this is called Vedana. Let's say it together. Vedana. Vedana means uh, feeling or experiencing. Uh, It doesn't mean emotions or feeling emotions, it refers to what it feels like when we have a sensory experience. What it feels like when we have a sensory experience. And the practice of Vedana, or the second foundation of mindfulness, is about a closer attunement to our subjective experience because the Buddha had a really great psychological insight. Which he said that every single experience has feeling tone. Every single experience has Vedana, has feeling tone. And he said that there are three forms of Vedana pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And it's called feeling tone, or some teachers call it hedonic tone. It's called feeling tone because it refers to the way we're feeling about experience. Not what we think about experience, but what experience feels like. And if you tune in in a spacious, with spacious awareness and a quiet body to what something feels like, It falls into one of these three baskets, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. If it's joy, if it's anger, if it's isolation, if it's celebration, if it's arousal, if it's loneliness, they all fall into one of these three baskets, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral.
2: pleasant or unpleasant it's, it's very personal and subjective to your Correct. MBA.
1: So there's an assumption here behind the scenes um, which is that you only have access to subjective experience okay and this is like one of the standard I mean we haven't gotten into this so deeply but this is like standard Indian philosophy 101 which is there's is no such thing as objectivity. You only have access to subjective experience because everything you experience is filtered through the sense organs. You can't know there's a bird, you can't know there's a wall, you can't know there's a sound, you can't know there's a taste without your body. And everybody's body has different memory and has different filters so you only have access to subjective experience. So next time you're in a fight with your partner, and you go, I can really tell what's going on here. (laughs) Like you take that objective kind of stance, be really careful. Because you only have your subjective experience. And the way this was traditionally taught in Indian philosophy, this is a tangent, but it's kind of fun, is uh, the text would say, if you were going to eat yourself, how would you eat yourself? So let's try this, okay? Imagine you're going to eat yourself. So what would you start with if you were going to eat yourself?
0: Wait, do we have to do it such that, like, like, I'm actually eating myself so I can't start with my mouth?
1: I don't know. I'm asking you. If you're going to eat yourself, like, where would you start? You're sitting here. Where would you, where would you start? Your shoulder, so you start I would eat
0: my work because then I am done eating. And then you're right done. Away, okay. And I don't have to deal it. And
1: then you'll die. Okay, yeah. so you'll die. Great. Somebody else. <laughs> if you were really hungry, you didn't just, just want to die, you wanted to have like a really oh, yeah, good, rich paleo. meal. Yeah, no, or you're like a paleo person, you're really into organs. You know?
3: Cool fat, you know?
1: all that fat. All that fat. Okay, but if you really investigated, like if you really ate your hand, and you really ate your arm, and then you did it on the other side, and then you were like doing all the mobility movements so you could actually <laughs> lift your foot up, right? Um, how would you eat your own mouth? How would you swallow your swallow reflex? And the punchline is you can't eat yourself. In other words, you can't get out of your subjective experience. And this is really interesting because this is really the core of Indian philosophy. And I think in Western philosophy, especially in like Western science up until the last decade, we really had this assumption that you can actually have objective experience. That you can be God and you can see something that's not colored by your subjectivity. So Vedana is about trusting in the subjective experience... And what it feels like, knowing that you can't get out of that experience. I was to a okay, bit, sure.
3: So I don't even know if you want to answer it, but
1: we'll ask the question and then maybe I. <laughs>
3: filters, and I guess yeah. it's one of the correlation of that. If we're filtering through memory, then is that then the sub- like programmed subconscious
1: mind? We'll get to it. I think. It's really interesting to work with people who have very intense anger. Or working with people who've done something in their life that's very, very harmful. Or working with people who are doing something in their life and have no clue that it causes harm. Because when you see how those folks are functioning, you start to see that every way that we perceive our experience all goes through this bottleneck of Vedana. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Somebody who has really intense anger doesn't see the bottleneck. Because everything bottlenecks through Vedana. Everything. This is the basic, um, or this is the core of Buddhist psychology. If you're 18 years old, and you're in prison for murder, you've acted out of a moment of Vedana. Vedana. We have so many social ways of thinking about that 18-year-old. We have so many legal ways of thinking about that 18-year-old. We have so many psychological ways of thinking about that 18-year-old kid. But from this view, his whole adult life, or her whole adult life, changed because of this one moment of unpleasantness and reactivity because of the inability to be in that unpleasantness. People who act out in these dramatic ways um, have had very deep original pain. We can't change the original pain. We think we can, don't we, sometimes? We think we can change the original pain. But when we have an original pain that we can't be with, we get a secondary pain. And the secondary pain is the pain of not being able to be with the original pain. So we have a secondary pain. We have an original pain. It's most dramatic for people who act out the original pain. And when I say acting out, I mean acting out, but also some people act in the original pain. And not being able to be with the original pain causes secondary pain. Then when you have secondary pain, you get tertiary pain. The third level of pain is when you can't be with the first level of pain, you're reacting to not being able to be with that pain, And then you get another level of pain, which is the structural pain of a system that keeps you in the secondary pain, whether it's the prison complex, or a mental institution, or a society that has no idea what to do with hyper boys. (laughs) So if we go down the bottleneck, from the symptoms of tertiary pain to secondary pain, which is the escape, to original pain, you start to see that everything that happens at that bottleneck creates the conditions for suffering. So let's go through it again. Secondary pain is what you do With original pain.
3: For example, original pain could be like some really childhood
1: trauma. Yeah. And secondary pain is how you manage or mismanage that. But most of that's not your fault. Because a lot of the secondary pain is just how you learn how to cope. So, secondary pain is drug use. Secondary pain is being tough. If you go into a juvenile, do they still call them juvenile detention Mm -hmm. center?
3: Um, Youth correctional. Youth
1: Youth correctional.
2: correctional.
1: And you talk to young people, you'll learn a lot about original pain. They actually
2: did some Americans winging into that system. Of all the people, the young kids who did
3: all the shootings at the schools, there's not one single. Not one instance where that person didn't self-report that they'd been abused as a child by someone in their family or yeah. they
2: had been bullied at school. Mm-hmm. Not one. Yeah. I mean, it was incredible to me when I heard that. You know? And that's what you're saying. So the original pain was in the jail, and the secondary, and now they're shooting yeah. at school.
1: Yeah. So if, so if you talk to those kids, you will hear their original pain. Mm-hmm. And... Um, most of those kids, their original pain is their dad. Dad's not there. Dad's drunk. Dad's abusive. Very, very common in our culture. Not every single person's father, but it's a really big one. I'm just using one example. Um, misattuned caregiving, violence at an early age witnessing violence, witnessing trauma. So the second foundation of mindfulness is about sitting in the middle of original pain. Sitting in the middle of original pain and stopping. To stop and feel the process of what's happening. Subjectively. Stop and feel the process of what's happening to you right now. I'm going to say it again. Stop and really feel the process of what's happening to you. If you're using heroin to be able to stop and actually feel the process of what's happening to you, makes all the difference. If you have a temper to be able to stop right in the middle of it, right in the middle of the temper and be able to actually feel what's happening for you. Pleasant, unpleasant, I'm not even going to say neutral. So yes, you need social support. Tell a heroin addict just to stop and feel their discomfort is useless. You need social support. You have to have a safe injection site. If you have a safe injection site, Overdoses decrease, why? Because you have community, you have other people. So you have to have social support. You have to be isolated from enablers. If you're trying to quit drinking and all your friends are drinking, all the mindfulness in the world is not gonna make much of a difference. It really isn't gonna make much. It's, that's way too idealistic, too individual, too 90s. So, yeah?
3: Would you say that for some people, the reaction to those stimulations, negative stimulations, yeah. maybe especially for women, is to become subservient and pleasing?
1: Sure. That could be. That could be a form of secondary pain, for sure. So, you need the social support, you need to not be isolated, you need all those things. Um, And also, here's where the Buddha's insight comes in. You need to be able to meditate on Vedana, to recognize Vedana. The Buddha says that all day long, we're having pleasant and unpleasant experiences. And the Buddha says it's like shifting winds all day long. Pleasant, unpleasant. Pleasant, unpleasant. I like it. I don't like it. So what is the second foundation of mindfulness? It's clearly recognizing, or recognizing these shifting states clearly enough that you can turn the light on. It's recognizing unpleasantness and turning the light on. It's recognizing the pleasant and turning the light on. When you get into a challenging situation... So let's all just reflect on the past month. Has anyone been in a challenging situation? When you get in a challenging situation, at first glance, it's really complex. So what do you do? I covered this yesterday. Remember, to go forward, you have to bend your knees. And you have to crouch and squat and move backwards. As Dogen says, you take the step backwards. So you back off from the situation. You back off from the situation. And you say to yourself, this is unpleasant. Can I say that again? Are you listening? Mm -hmm. You get into the hard situation and what do you do? How do I fix this? What do I do? Who am I going to align with? how am I going to get the hell out of here? I'm saying, stop. Stop. Bend your knees. Literally. Stop. Back off. What's the Vedana? What's the feeling tone? Unpleasant. And you've turned the light on. Remember the subjective experience. Not what's out there and all that complication. But just stop and know that that's unpleasant and be in the middle of that. Or, the same is true with pleasant. Sometimes we get into a pleasurable experience and we don't realize how much we're hanging on to it. Sexual fantasy. Anybody had one of these before? It's like, why meditate? I can just like be in this whole amazing fantasy... Again. (laughs) Or crime. Sometimes the high of crime can be really, really pleasant. But it's interesting because when you chase backwards the pleasantness of crime that hit you get when you steal something, or you chase backwards the experience of having the same sexual fantasy again and again and again, you start to notice that there was some unpleasantness, usually, that set that up. I say this a lot to people who tell me that when they are meditating, they uh, just keep hearing pop music. Mm -hmm. That happens a lot. It's like every time I sit down, I get Miley Cyrus. And so I always say to them, Pay attention to what's happening in the moment before the song starts. What's like, oh, song started? What was just happening before that? And you'll be in Vedana. Pleasant, unpleasant. So we're learning how to be upright in the pleasant and in the unpleasant, and in the neutral. And a good example of the neutral is social situations. Um, For example, um, if somebody criticizes you, um, you don't get sleepy. You really get energized. And sometimes if someone praises you, you don't usually space out. You usually get interested. But there are some people, many people, who are so used to being either praised or blamed that when you get in a situation where someone's not super interested in either, you get a little tired with them, a little spacey. You're not really there. That's neutral. It's losing interest in the interaction. Yeah? I've
0: been struggling with neutral a lot. I, cause I kind of feel like boredom is unpleasant, which is why the pop music or whatever will mm-hmm. come. Yeah. And I don't see it as neutral. Because if it was neutral, then for me, I feel like I'd be okay with that. But since it's unpleasant, right. maybe because I'm not being and not enlightened enough sensation, then I go to change it.
1: Yeah, so boredom can be unpleasant.
0: But then what is... Neutral
1: is... There's just not much.
0: And so that's... Does it... Is it just like maybe a matter of sitting longer for me to notice the neutrality of things? I haven't Uh, even noticed neutral.
1: Yeah. So there's some people, like Stephen Batchelor, for example, is a good uh, uh, example um, of Buddhist teachers who think that there's no such thing as neutral. There's either pleasant or unpleasant. That's okay, too. Maybe neutral doesn't happen to you.
3: I mean, it's probably more of a gradient. Going
1: from it's, it's totally different. a gradient. Yeah. That's why I like to use the example of neutrality in social situations, because you can see it, I think, really well in social situations. So
0: but that, that's what I'm confused about. Because yeah. if someone's criticizing me, then, I mean, it could be like, I could take it as pleasant, like you know, and get into like a friendly banter with them, or I'm pleasant, but I don't s- where's the neutrality in a social situation?
1: Well, I'm just giving like one example. Stale? Yeah, like stale. Like a good place to see neutrality is you're hanging out with someone who's just not that interested in you or in what you guys are doing together. Or if you're
2: hanging you know, just say your relationships with our close loved ones or whoever, and they're telling something that you've heard before, and you just check out, right? Yeah. How often do we do that? All well, you know, often, yeah. right? Because we've heard it before. We blanket it as something yeah. that we're not that interested in.
1: Exactly. So if an emotion comes up, let's just sum up. Don't get too caught in the, in the, uh, in the neutral. If you're not into the neutral, forget the neutral if an emotion comes up remember how we started this by talking yesterday about the content and letting go of the content, remember my button? I should be wearing that (laughs) the point is when an emotion comes up to notice the Vedana, notice the feeling tone the feeling tone is pleasant or unpleasant that's it anger arises notice the feeling tone so it's not the emotion we're paying attention to. It's the feeling tone.
2: like The physical feeling?
1: Um, pleasant or unpleasant? Yeah, it's, a phys- it's an embodied feeling. It takes some people years and years and years to finally see that anger is unpleasant. it can take a long time to see that there is a cost to being angry, a metabolic cost, a relational cost, a cost to the digestive uh, digestive system. And all of this unpleasantness gets reinforced. And when you stop and you see that anger is unpleasant, you really see something important about anger that's more important than what the other person was doing that made you angry. So we're making a shift from what we're angry at to what it feels like to have an unpleasant experience. Do you hear that? So that's the key insight of the second foundation of mindfulness. (laughs) And also, it means noticing the pleasant, and taking in the pleasant, and know what pleasant feels like. I used to do a lot of meta practices, a lot of loving-kindness practices. And then, when I started getting a better hang on what the second foundation of mindfulness was, I started noticing that it's a kind of loving-kindness practice, that when you're able to be upright, and really take in what pleasantness feels like. Friendliness arises. Appreciation arises. Gratitude arises. Compassion arises. So this second foundation is about how to turn the light on in the laboratory of pleasant and unpleasant. That's why unpleasant meditation can be such a good teacher. Don't tell students this. Practitioners who come to learn meditation, they just want it to be pleasant, fine. But those of you who are starting to learn about facilitation, those of you who are going deeper in your own practice, it's really important that you have unpleasant meditation sessions. It's so important that when you wake up in the morning, and you sit still, and it's not pleasant, you sit in it. And you turn the light on in unpleasant. When you turn the light on in the unpleasant, you're practicing the second foundation of mindfulness. And it teaches you a skill, which is how to do that in daily life. And if you're somebody that has a lot of lust, or somebody that has a lot of craving... This is such a good practice. Because you're learning how to sit in your original fire. Original unpleasantness. Or original pleasantness. How can you sit in what's not, how can you sit in what's pleasant, really know it, and not want more of it? Just know the pleasantness. Stay with pleasantness without making more, needing to make more of it. So to sum up, the Buddha gave tremendous, I can't emphasize this enough, but gave tremendous emphasis on Vedana. And usually, English translators translate it as feeling. But it's not like having feelings, it's feeling tone. And all of our feelings and all of our emotions have feeling tone pleasant, unpleasant. I never said neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant. I, I, uh, <laughs> one of the people who, who I've studied with uh, quite a bit uh, is a guy named Bernie Glassman. Uh, no, I know. Uh, Bernie Glassman's a really interesting guy. He was a mathematician and a rocket scientist. Like you know when someone says a rocket scientist he like, actually was a rocket scientist. And uh, then he met a Zen teacher uh, named Taizan Mizumi Roshi uh, in Los Angeles and studied with him. And one day, uh, after many years of practice, uh, Bernie had uh, this big awakening experience where he saw that everybody had craving that could never be satisfied. It completely changed his life. Everybody had craving that couldn't be satisfied. And then he realized, so the only thing to do about that is to end homelessness.
3: Hmm.
1: That was his response. I have to end homelessness. So he moved to New York City, and um, where he was from. And he started a center there. And then he started a bakery. And it's called the Greyston Bakery. And in business school now, people learn about this model. But he started this bakery where anyone who was homeless could come in and have a job. No resume. Come in and have a job. And his goal was to make the best cheesecake in New York. That was his goal. We're going to make the best cheesecake. All homeless people. Then, uh, upstairs from the bakery, they had a little temple. And every day during the day, people would be invited to come sit if they wanted to. And as the bakery did well, they started buying up land around the bakery and started um, housing all the people who were working at the bakery and then built a center for people living with HIV AIDS. Now they own a whole block in Yonkers, a whole block. It's amazing. Anyways, Bernie is a really amazing guy and eventually he stopped doing that and then he started leading meditation retreats at Auschwitz and then he started leading meditation retreats in Rwanda um, now he's doing them in the Black Mountains. Um, really, really interesting uh, interesting person. And uh, on January 12th, uh, he had a stroke. And so now he, he's, he's getting some therapy, but uh, not doing so, so great. Um, uh, somebody who went to visit him told me that um, while he was in the hospital after the stroke, um, he, he kept doing this for the nurses. And they all thought he was trying to pray, but he was just thanking them, because this only one hand was working. And they were like, we think he's trying to pray. His wife was like, no. He's just saying, thank you. So uh, one of his key teachings is uh, what he calls bearing witness. And bearing witness means whether it's pleasant or whether it's unpleasant, you just keep looking at it. And that there's no right way to do that. You just keep looking at it. And if you keep looking at it and you keep feeling it, you will become it. There's no way to understand what happened at Auschwitz. There's no way to understand that. So what do you do? You go there. You go there and you keep looking and smelling and tasting, and thinking, and feeling, and you keep doing it again, and again, and again, and then you become the victim, and you become the perpetrator, and you become the social conditions, and you become the person who built the gas chamber, and you become the person who drove the railway car. You become all of those people until you're actually the situation. That's called bearing witness. So I want to mention this because I feel like sometimes um, without referring to Eckhart Tolle sometimes spiritual meditative practice makes us feel like the Vedana part is passive. Is passive. It's just to be like I can feel whatever moves through me. But it's not. It has a pro-social dimension. Which is when you're able to be in your experience and really bear witness, especially to original pain. To stop in the middle of it. That's a response. That's action. It's doing something. It's saying... I can be in the middle of this and I'm not going to shoot up right now. Or I'm going to shoot up right now, but I know I'm doing it. And next time I'll remember that there was a little gap there between the pain and me needing to do something about it. And next time I'm going to aim for that gap. Do I need social support? Yes. Do I need to be away from enablers? Yes. Can I do it all by myself? No. But do I have to work with Vedana? Absolutely. Absolutely I have to work with the pain that's original so I don't create the secondary pain. So here's what Bernie Glassman has to say. Uh, Listen closely. This is good. When we bear witness, we become the situation. Homelessness Poverty, illness, violence, death—the right action, respond, uh, The right action arises by itself. We don't have to worry about what to do. We don't have to figure out solutions ahead of time. Peacemaking is the functioning of bearing witness. Isn't that beautiful? Peacemaking is the functioning of bearing witness. Once we listen with our entire body and mind, loving action arises. Loving action is right action. It's as simple as giving a hand to someone who stumbles or picking up a child who's fallen on the floor. We take such direct natural actions every day of our lives without considering them special. And they're not special. Each is simply the best possible response to that situation in that moment. So listen to how open that is. Right? You can't rehearse what to do ahead of time. A friend of yours is in the hospital. You're feeling a little nervous. I don't know what to do. Uh, What should I say? They're dying. I've never been with a dying person. You drop all that. You just go unpleasant. unpleasant. Unpleasant, 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 unpleasant. And you show up. And if you can take care of knowing that that's unpleasant, you'll know what to do. You'll know what to do. Because you can take care of unpleasantness. And if you're going into the hospital and you don't know how to take care of unpleasantness and your friend is hurting upstairs, you'll stop at Starbucks and you'll get a Frappuccino something, chocolate chips, nuts, What else do they sell there? Donuts. Do they sell donuts at Starbucks? Starbucks donuts, which are probably amazing. And then you'll get up there all bloated and dissociated. Plus you're a raw food person and you've just wrecked the whole thing. And you're going to be fat. So then you're sitting with them. They're dying and you're just like, I'm going to be fat. Same thing. Same thing. Bearing witness means giving up secondary pain to feel original pain. To feel, it's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. And with the trust, and this is the key to our whole practice, is you're going to know what to do. And then he says, what do you do? Well, it's going to be the best possible response for that situation. And then, if you're paying attention, you'll know if it's not the best response. And then, let it go, try something else. And then let it go, and try something else. So if I were to translate that, I would say, try something. Are you scared? Try something. You feel fear? You don't know what to do? Try something. You have indecision right now? Try something. Just try something. Don't hold on to it. Just keep trying something. Again and again and again, just try something. It's Bernie Glassman. Oh, Bernie Glassman.
3: Glassman.
1: He stayed with me for a while in, in, in Toronto. <clears throat> I said, Do you have any needs? He said, Just a place to smoke a good cigar. And he taught he taught me during the week how to smoke. This was like his main thing. He's really into cigars. So he taught he taught me how to. How to
2: interesting cigars.
1: Yeah. So he, he taught me how to smoke cigars. And then at the end of the uh, retreat, he left his um, his vest at my house. So I said, how how should I get you the vest? Do you want me to mail it to? He's like, don't worry about it. <laughs> I was like, I've got your vest. This is like you've had this vest for. It Doesn't matter. He wore the same thing every day. That's how I got the habit, if you haven't noticed it, wearing the same thing every day. Yeah? Something came to mind
3: when you were talking about this whole process, and I thought of um, a child I know, you know, that's had a lot of crazy things happen around the father. And I guess when it comes to applying what we're learning, how would you catch a child, you know, right around puberty, before they go to the family? They... Because I'm like, observing, I yeah. have, not, have no way how to access this. my nephew, but I'm watching him for some reason, and there's three of them, mm-hmm. so I'm watching him because I don't know why, I just sense that... He's the one mm-hmm. that's the most affected mm-hmm. or chose to perceive whatever has been happening. Mm-hmm. You know, so how would how would you like access that child before he even is beginning to shoplift or sneaking those sips of alcohol, and I say this out of experience. Yeah.
2: But like how do you you know, like catch them I'm I'm actually I'm dealing with that with my son right now. He's 10, and he has crazy anger outbursts. Just started about less than a year ago. Out in nowhere. Um, it's hard, but we, he was young enough that we convinced him about going to a therapist, and she, play, like, she plays with him. So it's, it's less about sitting and talking, and they're kicking the soccer ball, and then um, we do things like we play Feelings Jenga you know, the Jenga block, put the block on top, and then you pull one out, and it has a feeling, and then we have to take turns saying, I feel embarrassed when, da-da-da-da, and and through therapy. But there are times when he doesn't want to go. Like, there was one time he, we had to sit in the car, and he wouldn't go. But, uh, I don't know. I'm just, I, I hope that I'm trying to catch this, and I don't know what the underlying causes are, but I don't, the anger is not okay, like it's, it's escalated and I don't want him to be exactly like he's going to be a teenager who's going to try all these things and get crazy, you got to try to like nip it in the bud before but, but I don't know, it's, it's very hard to, uh, mm-hmm. to access this stuff
1: So I just want to pause yeah. because I think this is a really important conversation and I think we all want to have it but I want to try and keep things right now just in terms of our experience of pleasant and unpleasant. So in this situation, it's not that there's lots to explore, but let's feel what it's like to have the kid or know this kid who's going through this. Like, what does that feel like? You can't bear witness to the kid that's suffering Unless you can f- feel you, your response to that, you don't have to feel their suffering. You, you can't feel. You don't know what they feel. You can't do that. You can't go into someone else's feeling.
3: So, could, through the meditative mindfulness process, then is it an exercise or a tool to take something uncomfortable? Sure. And pull it in. I'm take, yeah. Hey, I'm aware of
1: this. Um, yeah, we're going to be doing a little bit of that. Okay. Yeah, but right now, just you're talking about this boy. So, just feel your subjective feeling of unpleasantness. And just like be able to know that, to name that, to feel that. That's what we mean by the second foundation of mindfulness. Okay. So, yes, all of us want to have this conversation. It's good to have this conversation. But I want to try and keep it a little bit connected just to this technique. What's it like to feel the pain of somebody else's pain? Right? What's it like? Now, all of us can get into really good social explanations and about why we need more skate parks or whatever, but what does it feel like to feel the pain of young boys? Millions of young boys. Millions of young boys. Or what does it feel like to feel the pain of helplessness? Like, I can't actually deal with that many young boys who are in pain. Or what about that many young boys whose dads are in jail? All those young boys whose dads are in jail, whose dads were also in jail. So... Like, just feeling that is this bodhisattva practice. And the reason why I brought Bernie Glassman into the equation is because he's saying your ability to bear witness to that is going to become a pro-social activity. And I'll just add to that that we all know people who have really strong political viewpoints, maybe a whole political philosophy, but if you pay really close attention to when they speak, that whole philosophy is really about the inability to be with unpleasantness. But they don't even see it, like Donald Trump. <laughs> we are going to build a wall, right? Well, like, what's underneath that? What do you feel underneath that? Well, you, you drive down through the bottleneck, and what do you get? Vedana. Unpleasantness. Unpleasantness. Yes?
0: Is it when we're doing these practices, like formally or informally, is it important to try to mindfully come back to it or is it important to just let it happen and notice when it's leaving? Because I find, mm-hmm. for me, that's, um, that's the tricky part, is yeah. is noticing, instead of just noticing a new sensation coming in, yeah. actually
1: authentically noticing when that's yeah. leaving. Yeah, course, nice. yeah. so um, we're not going to do, like, a focused meditation where it's, like, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. Um, but what we are going to do is, when we're sitting, I'm going to ask you to just notice if there's unpleasantness. Really gentle. Notice if there's pleasantness. And if there's unpleasantness, keep noticing it. Watch how it changes. And most importantly, when there's something unpleasant, when you notice, watch how it changes, and watch how noticing it changes it. Yeah. Something is painful. And when you notice it, the noticing it changes the degree of pain. And I say that now, and you're like, what? But then you actually try that. The pain of longing for X. You stop focusing on X. I really, really want the ice cream. Oh unpleasantness or pleasantness how come i can't be with this pleasantness i have to have more sugar to this pleasantness you know a lot of people they can't be with pleasantness they don't they don't see it so i wanted to just give you uh... before your question i just wanted to give you two references that are really wonderful Um. <laughs> Uh so one is um uh Rick Hansen's book Hardwiring Happiness um has a really really interesting perspective on why it's hard to stay in a sustained relationship with pleasantness. Um he's done a lot of research around what he calls the negativity bias in the brain and I find his work really interesting. Um Maybe a little overstated, but interesting. Uh, Hardwiring Happiness by Rick Hansen. Um, Another book that's really uh, dear to me these days, which is about how it's important to also see the social dimension of our inability to be with unpleasantness, is uh, a British um, journalist named Johan Hari, who just wrote a book about addiction. Uh, name I'm, I'm blanking Chasing the Scream. on. Chasing the Scream. And a lot of his book is focused on the work of a guy in Vancouver named Bruce Alexander. Um, and I think one of the things Johan Hari is really missing is actually the Venena piece, because he doesn't give a lot of credence to the personal dimension of addiction, but what he talks about in terms of social support around unpleasantness is really, really interesting how he's put it together. So just two resources if those of you who want to geek out um, tonight. How uh, do
2: you last
1: name? H-A-R-I. I, just, I really appreciated the talk today. It's more of a comment, but it's been interesting for me being around so many yoga practitioners coming yeah. from a background that's not really in that community, yeah. and one thing I've, I've seen is like it's a very different approach to meditation that seems to be all about like seeking out good feelings uh-huh. and avoiding difficult feelings, yeah. and that's like a critique I guess I've carried with me in the yoga circles I've run yeah. into i think it's one thing that meditation really brings is like this interest in dealing with emotional like difficult emotions and yeah. working with things like death and illness uh-huh. and suffering and also negative mental states yeah. i think there's something almost like neurotic about not being willing to feel bad and I'm yeah. so obsessed with health that we're like a, we avoid it and we hang out in kits instead of like going to other parts of our city where yeah. people really suffer and yeah like, anyway i just really yeah like you had to say Great. thank you Yeah, I mean, I guess just to underline um, that this path is really, really hard because the basic assumption about this path is that you can suffer. And if you are always just wanting pleasurable experience and that's what you're training in, then when the going gets tough, you don't have any tools to work with what's arising. It's really, really problematic. Um, so nothing more needs to be said. Everybody knows what he's referring to. So thank you for, for that. Will. Yeah. Karen, or which one of you had your first? Karen, do you want to go first? And then Spiffy can go. I
0: think you've said this. I'm trying to understand um, in, the, in the practice of working with this form,
1: to you get your attention kind of wedged in
0: pre-reaction, like before, yeah. before you even pay any attention to the reaction be, yeah. to
1: be rippling out to be. So that's right? Like, yeah. So, yes. So, so, pre-reaction, but also to keep in mind that you can't experience anything without some level of influence in it so even what you determine is unpleasant is going to be what you experience as unpleasant so you could say that's already a reaction but we're trying to get closer to that original data that initial, that raw data remember I was talking about the raw diet the raw sensation diet so how can you feel unpleasantness before you decide anything about it. And what Bernie Glassman's saying here is, don't worry. If you keep getting closer to the unpleasant, you'll know what to do. It'll it'll just show up. Like like a response will just show up. And that feels different than a reaction. Because it was totally unplanned. It's like, oh God, I should just put a blanket on their feet. (laughs) And unpredictable. Does that does that make sense a little bit? Unpredictable.
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah, like, this isn't my question, but I'm thinking in my head. But it's like a reaction is predictable, you know how someone's going to react, whereas like, a creative solution comes from insights. Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering, I'm sort of like, obviously, it may be hard to actually figure this out rationally, but if there is, uh, like, some kind of original pain. Yeah. What is the relationship that happened to create the grounds for secondary pain to happen? Like, was it an avoidance of that? Like, what happened? And then, and, and then what is the relationship between that and what continues to happen with secondary pain? Like, what mm. is not happening or what could happen? Right.
1: So, the secondary pain is biological. So, our organism has uh, <laughs> apparatus, apparati? Apparata. stuff, our organism has stuff so that we do different things when our systems are overwhelmed uh, dissociation, compartmentalization there are so many different things that we do in order to manage original pain and those are strategies that are primarily biological Okay, to save our lives. And then the secondary pain is how all those strategies start functioning in our lives and in our culture. That stuff is what we need to be able to suspend in order to get closer to the original pain. So, what I mean to say in my response is you can't not have the secondary pain. Like, the secondary pain is what our personality, our psyche, our body does when we're overwhelmed by the original pain. And when we get into trauma, we're going to look at that even more closely. But it's not like you had a choice. Like, you created the secondary situation because that's what you had to do to save your life. And the secondary pain is better than the original pain. So let's say it's cutting, right? You can't feel your original pain because it's been blocked off. But your body actually wants to feel that original pain. So if you cut yourself, then that pain turns into form a diffuse emotional dissociative uh, pain and makes it real. That's secondary pain. You cut yourself, and you're making your emotional wound real so that you can feel something mm-hmm. because you're numb. And then you feel something. You feel something, right? Is, That's secondary, though. That's is secondary. It this,
3: like, this, like, is it the same pain? Like, is the quality of that original pain the same as the quality, but maybe just less pain?
1: No, they could have nothing to do with each other. I
3: guess or same. or some is people, there, they could repeat it. Is like, there one pain, I guess? Like, is it the same?
1: No. <laughs> there's different original pains. There's different kinds of trauma. Um, but some people do... Oh, this is so complicated. Let's save it for the trauma day. Okay. But there's some people who do act out secondary pain to try and make it similar to the original pain. In the same way that if you've had a certain pattern of growing up as the kid who is the therapist for your mom, you will probably be attracted to partners for whom you can be their therapist. And if you meet somebody and they're like, they've really got their shit together and they don't need you to be the therapist, they're probably not an attractive partner because you can't be their therapist. Even though it's probably like the perfect person that you need, but first you have to have a few codependent relationships. (laughs) Okay, so um, let's sum up. Let's sum up. And then um, we're going to, that's all the theory for today. And then we're going to, I was going to say we're going to act this out. (laughs) The first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the breathing body. We added a piece before, which is to learn how to experience receptivity so that we can let content come and go in the form of sound. This reduces reactivity, reduces stress. We all can feel that, I think. Then, we introduce mindfulness of breathing so we can feel how, in the same way that sounds come and go, the breath comes and goes. goes. Now, our attention starts settling, and as it starts settling in that calmer space, we start to notice that there's this function where all the time we're moving back and forth between feeling pleasant, unpleasant, Pleasant, unpleasant. And in that space, if you even see like an emotion, a trigger, something that stirs you up, you can start to see, so in the space of quietude, it's unpleasant. It's pleasant. Pleasure, not pleasure. Pleasure, not pleasure. And at that level, you're seeing biology, right? little bit of psychology, but a lot of biology. Pleasant, unpleasant. Pleasant, unpleasant. So instead of getting into the content or like the emotional quality of something or what your anger is related to, unpleasant. Walk into a situation and you find yourself just spinning, don't know what to do, blah, blah, blah. What's going on right now? What's the feeling tone? What's the feeling tone? And that is the second foundation of mindfulness. That's it. That's the second foundation. That's all we're doing. is just noticing what pleasant feels like, noticing what unpleasant feels like. And you might be thinking, this is the most simplistic thing I've ever heard. Actually, you wouldn't believe how many complicated personality traits that you have and that you act out can be boiled down to pleasant unpleasant. It's kind of amazing. And that's why I like using this frame of the bottleneck. That all of this big stuff sometimes, even your whole philosophy about life, might actually just have to do with pleasant unpleasant. So does this relate at all to like just the simplistic approach avoidance?
2: Or like you're you just simplify it, or or is that level of motivation on top of it?
1: Just it, not, it yeah, just staying okay. with embodied feeling tone. Okay. Yeah. And then we're going to get into mental states okay. and how mental states build on top of that. On top of that. Yeah. So that's another layer. Totally. Uh, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, and
2: permanence and impermanence, mm-hmm. does that sort of fall into the feeling section or does it go into mind states?
1: Are there permanent feelings?
2: Well, not whether there are, or they're perceived to be. Like For example, I only have my own experience, but like I, I, part of my challenge in um, pleasant or unpleasant was whatever feeling there was was permanent, or I perceived it to be permanent.
1: Yeah, when you're in pain, you think this is going to be permanent. Yeah. And when you have pleasure, you don't want to know about impermanence. (laughs) You don't want to know anything about impermanence. The example that I I like, can I tell you one story? And then we'll we'll stop. But the example that I really like uh, telling is um, um, when I was a kid after school, I used to go to my grandmother's house. And um, so I take the bus, and she has these stairs, go up the stairs, ring the doorbell, I was, you know, not as tall as I am now. Ring the doorbell. And she'd answer and she'd be like one stair higher than me when the door. So I was like quite low down. And then she'd take out her arms like this. And she had huge breasts, my grandmother. And so she would, I don't know how she did it exactly, but it felt like she was taking my head and putting it in between her breasts, like right in between. And then she'd hug me like this. And it felt amazing. It was like... (laughs) <laughs> like this it felt so amazing but it only felt amazing for like three seconds yeah. but she kept going She kept going. you know when you do this to your kids you just hug them like longer than they really want Yeah. and so she'd keep hugging me and I'd be like so I used to have to bend my knees and I would like slide <laughs> out like right this to get out of her cleavage <laughs> Yeah, so something can be really pleasant. Like a hug is like this, right? It can be really pleasant. Or like you meet someone on Tinder and like finally you kiss them. And it's like, oh, that's amazing. But I think we all know that like a kiss sometimes can go on a certain point where it's like, enough already. Consent, you don't have consent when you're a little kid and your grandmother has your like consent okay so basically something can be so amazing and so pleasurable and very very quickly you have that one more piece of chocolate right you have yeah or it's like this espresso is so good I'll order another one and the next thing you know you're like all jacked up and and all you can think about is like So, uh, thank you very much. (laughs) So, uh, let's have a don't tell anybody this story. Uh, Let's have a break for. Do you want to do like ten minutes? Ten minutes, and then we're going to go into our groups, and we're going to do more guided meditation to keep bringing this home. We're doing drills, meditation drills. You're the athlete, right? Drills is that what? Yeah. We're doing drills. Okay. That's right.